God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with, pow- with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the instruction that it gives to us in life and in this particular context in church and how you are to conduct yourself in the context of your church. And we pray now that as we speak of things of which there are many questions and about which there are many questions, we pray that you would guide us into truth so that we would understand how we are to live in this world. Illumine your word for us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us are plainly and sometimes quite painfully aware of the fact that we live in a world of increased security. And when you go into places, that security becomes immediately apparent. So, for example, if you go in or try to go down to Temple University and enter into one of the buildings of Temple University, well, there you will find someone stationed at the door who will say to you, show me some ID. Show me who you are and whether or not you should be in this place or not. If you go down to CHOP Hospital, whether as a patient or with a child as a patient or as a visitor, one of the things that they're immediately going to ask for is your license. They'll take your license from you, they'll put it into a scanner which does a quick background check on it, and then you they produce a badge for you. It's got your picture on it, it's got your name printed on it. It doesn't just say visitor, it says visitor and has your picture and draws information off of your license so that it is very clear who you are. We all are familiar with this when we're trying to go through uh, airport security sections. You've gotta have your photo ID and your tickets ready as you approach the security gate because you're going to be scanned and you're going to be interviewed. 
if you've watched the Olympics, uh, you know that all of the athletes and the coaches who are within the environs of the event itself are credentialed, which is to say they've been examined and they've got pieces of paper, you see them hanging around their necks, you see them attached to their bags, that say you have a right to be here. You can be on the field at this particular time or around the pool and your bag can be as well. The question that all of these situations have in common is do you belong? Are you part of this or not? So the TSA agent asked that question, do you have the right credentials, do you have the right ID in order to let you through this gate and all of these other people that we talked about? They are key holders, they are gatekeepers. And their job is to keep everybody safe by examining whether or not you have the proper ID. And this same question applies to the church. Do you belong to the church? Do you belong inside the church? Or are you an outsider, to use the language that is used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? Do you have the proper credentials? Now, as I said, in the Old Testament, this took on not only a spiritual aspect, but a very physical aspect as well. And we see that from very early on. We see it from Eden and an angel who is stationed at the gate to guard the way back into Eden. And then we see it in the design and construction of both the tabernacle and the temple. We see it in Jerusalem, which is a walled city, according to the uh, the call to worship that we read. Jerusalem is built together, built firmly together. The walls are surrounding Jerusalem. And then we see it in the borders of Israel as well. In the New Covenant community, this is primarily spiritually that the church has these fences, these walls, these borders that define it. All right, here's where I want to begin. What I want to begin with is a list a list of the objections and the obstacles that I've heard pastorally, uh, and I've, I've heard them from some of you sitting in this room. Uh, uh, I've heard them from other places regarding church membership. And I want to, to, to recognize the reality of these objections, of these concerns, and frankly, they're legion. There are a whole bunch of them. But I want to give you some of the ones that we've heard. So first reason. Churches are flawed places. They're broken places with broken people. I get that Jesus is a great king and he is sinless, that his body is ultimately perfect, but I don't know why I would submit myself or join a flawed group of people. Secondly, there are so many different churches. There are so many different branches of the churches, even in what seems to be monolithic, whether it be the Catholic Church or whether it be the Orthodox Church. There are, in fact, a wide variety of churches. There's Ukrainian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox. There uh, are Catholic churches that go under the Pope and others that don't. And then you have Protestant churches and all of the many divisions of Protestant churches. And then you have churches which are non-denominational churches that want to reject all of that. If I'm supposed to join a church, which church am I to join? There are so many different ones. Another membership and distinctives of membership between churches are in fact divisive rather than inclusive. They separate people. 
I don't think God wants his church to be separated. I think God wants his church to be one, and therefore I'm not going to join something that excludes me or someone else from something else. Another, love is more important. Love is more important than defined membership. That is what God cares about. That is what God commands. Membership is a distraction to love because membership has a way of making things feel more like an institution or an organization. And after all, the church is an organism. The church is an organism that grows and loves and that happens naturally and you don't have to have membership for that to take place. Along with that then is the idea that membership and the issues of membership are just not clear in scripture. That there's just, the scripture just doesn't have something clear and precise to say about that. Surely the scriptures do say things about membership, like the verse that's on the front of your bulletin. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. But when it makes statements like that, it is not speaking organizationally, it is speaking metaphorically. So metaphorically, as your hand is a member or your finger is a member of your body, so you metaphorically are members of the Church of Christ, but not in an organizational sense. I am a member of the invisible church. This is a more sophisticated argument. Uh, this is for people who've heard confessions like the uh, larger catechism, and they at least have heard the term, I'm a member of the invisible church, I don't need to be a member of the visible church. I really suspect that most people who say that couldn't define what the invisible church is, but be that as it may, this idea of the invisible church, of which I'm automatically de facto a part of, supersedes the visible church, and therefore why join the visible church when I'm a member of the more important thing, which is, in fact, the church invisible. Another, we like our freedom. We especially like our freedom spiritually. We are a people who like to keep our options open and would like to guide ourselves in many things and certainly would like to guide ourselves in our own spiritual growth. We're comfortable with the idea that we have a king, that Jesus is our king. So far, so good. That is great. But when you talk about that king giving some of his authority, entrusting his authority, even if it is a limited trust, if that is passed along to church leaders, then I'm not so in favor of that, especially when that authority might be used over me to say something about me, to say something about my walk and the direction of my walk. That, I think, is especially true of us as Americans, and we must admit that this is especially true of us as Protestants. After all, Protestants were born in the context of protest against church authority, or at least that's a part of the narrative. The narrative would be more accurate if we said Protestantisms were pro Protestantisms. Protestants were protesting against the abuse of church authority. Not the idea of church authority, not that there was church authority, but that in this case the church authority was being abused, that it was not being according to the Word of God. But we've got to recognize that we've got this deep within us, after all. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. 
So why do we need any kind of church authority or man-made structures? I get my fellowship from many places. I got friends, I've got school, and now I'm not geographically locked into some particular place. I am, in fact, electronically linked to many people in many different places, and therefore, I don't really need a local community as much as perhaps some people in some time and some age actually did. The internet has replaced the need for gathered spiritual fellowship. And in fact, the internet has replaced the need for spiritual leadership. Because you can kind of look up spiritual WebMD. You can do this physically, all of you. I bet, I bet, I, I can't say all of you. I would say 95% of the people in this room have used WebMD or the Mayo Clinic or something like that to take a set of symptoms, put it in the internet and see, say what's wrong with me and self-diagnose. Well, you can do it physically, you can do it spiritually. Who needs spiritual leadership? You self-diagnose, you self-treat, and you can access the best of the best for your spiritual treatment online. Besides, people move. People move, they, they geographically move, and sometimes they just move between churches. Because you get upset with one church and you go to another church, and pastors move from one church to another. So if, if, if in membership you're trying to sell this idea of a deep, total life commitment to a local body of people where you, you're baptized or you baptize your children and you grow up together and people marry and you worship together and then you die together. If you're trying to sell that as a reason for local church membership, well, you're about 200 years late because that just isn't the reality anymore. People move all over the place all the time. It, it might have been. It might have been 200 years ago like that, and people might not, most people might not have moved a lot. But now, how are you going to sell that? And when you become a member of the church, you've obviously got some commitments that come along with it. Why not just get the benefits by attending? I might get abuse from people for joining a particular church, and if I can just attend and say, hey, I'm just attending there, I'm actually not a member, well, I feel a lot better about things. I don't, I, don't, I don't have to take the abuse that comes along with it because, after all, I didn't sign on the dotted line. I'm not a member. So, did I leave out any uh, obstacles and objections? If I left yours out, uh, let me know afterwards. I'll uh, add that to the list of those that uh, I have heard. I feel like I have made the mountain high enough. I didn't actually, I counted them at one point. I was writing out that list. I stopped at 15. I was like, all right, that's, that's plenty. Uh, that are there. But these are real things. These are serious objections. I, I mean, I said them as objections. I didn't try. I may have at points. I, forgive me for that. I didn't try to say them tongue-in-cheek. I tried to say them with weight and with seriousness because these are the things that we think about when we think about church and the problems that we have with churches. And so they are real things. In light of these then powerful objections, we've got to ask ourselves the question, okay, those are powerful objections. What then does the Bible have to say about membership? Does the Bible have a way of dealing with these kind of objections to church membership? And that's where I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians 5 
And again, uh, what I want to look at here are the, the parameters, the presuppositions, rather than the issue itself. So let me just tick these off as you look at this passage now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's point number one of this passage. Human sexuality is real, and it can be exercised properly or improperly, morally or immorally. There are definitions to it. The Corinthians were insisting on their freedom of expression. They were, if you read that or listened to that passage closely, they were boasting. They were basically saying, listen, we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want to do. We don't have to have these boundaries, these walls that hem us in from our sexual expression. And Paul says, no, as a matter of fact, that is not the case. There are parameters for marriage and sexuality, and they are established by God. And you have to function. You have to flourish within the parameters that have been established by God. So he sets this up, right? They're saying, hey, it's great. We've got sexual liberation. We can do whatever we want. Boasting about it, Paul says, no. There's a framework, and you have to pay attention to it. Secondly, there is a reality that is here. There is an entity that is identifiable, and it is called the church. And the church in Corinth has a concern about the aforementioned expression of sexuality and its relative propriety or impropriety in exercise. The church has a right to be concerned about this, and Paul, as a church planter and apostle, is giving the church directions in how they are to deal and set the parameters for sexual morality or immorality. But this leads us immediately to the third point, which is this. Particularly, this propriety and this parameter especially belongs to the people who are within the church, who are members of the church. Well, how do you know whether or not someone is a member of the church? How do you know here in 1 Corinthians 5 if that's a thing or that's not a thing? They are identifiable. How are they identifiable? They are identifiable, verse 11, but I am writing not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. They are identifiable as a person who belongs to the church of Jesus Christ because they bear the name, which is to say they have made the good confession. What is the good confession? Two weeks ago, Jesus is Lord. That's the good confession. And in making the good confession in the presence of witnesses, you are joined unto the visible church. Corinth, first, pres uh, first church of Corinth, sorry in the prayers there. First Church of Corinth. You are a member of that received as you make the confession before that church, before the members of it. When these people who bear the name gather together, that's how Paul addresses them in verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. So when you come together individually as bearers of the name and you gather together, you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is a reality, and it is an identifiable reality. You are able to tell who that is and who that not is. 
who that, who that is not. It's just like our own families. So in your families, whether by birth or by adoption or because you married into your family, you gained a name. And you're now a Smith or you're now a Jones. And individually, you have that name. So you go to class and they call out the roles and your name individually is mentioned. But you are a part of the Smiths or the Jones family. And you oftentimes assemble together and are called the Smiths or the Jones. And sometimes you have a family reunion. And it will be the Smith family reunion. Or if it's two sides of the family who are coming together, it's the Smith-Jones family reunion. And you have that on t-shirts. You bear the name. And these name bearers are distinguished as being those who are properly termed by Paul insiders. That's the premise of the last paragraph of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They are insiders as opposed to those who are not members of the church, which is to say they don't bear the name, who are properly termed by him outsiders. There are insiders and there are outsiders in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul makes it clear Listen, I'm not telling you not to associate with just anybody who's sexually immoral or greedy or a swindler or anything else. That's impossible. You'd have to get out of the world because everybody's got something going on in their lives. What I'm instructing you about is for people who bear the name and have fallen habitually into a sin which so characterizes them that it becomes scandalous, like was the case here, you need to disassociate yourself from them, and you need to disassociate them from you. He's concerned with judging insiders. God will judge the outsiders. He's not worried about that. It would be nice if everyone in the world followed these sexual laws that God has written. They are for all men. All men will be judged by them. But as it relates to the authority of the elders of the church in Corinth, their job, along with Paul, is to judge insiders, not outsiders. And it is then to those insiders to whom, in this case, church discipline is used. The fourth parameter, then, is the oversight, care, and discipline of the church belongs specifically, specifically to the members, to those who are inside. What the church in Corinth is doing under Paul's instruction is exercising the use of the keys of the kingdom. They are opening and closing the doors to the church. Don't misunderstand, by the way, that word purge that one from amongst your midst. This is not talking about something physical here. This is spiritually saying, don't count that one as a member of the church anymore. This is a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant fused those two things together so that the kingdom, Israel, had rights over property, persons physically and spiritually. Here in the new covenant, those two things are diffused between the state having the power of the sword and the church, spiritually speaking. So Paul is merely speaking here of what you do with that person spiritually, count them outside of the church. The disciplined is exercised then according to the word of God. It is a declarative discipline. 
Jesus is the only king and head of the church. Jesus designated authority to the apostles that is a unique authority to them. Only they, not elders to follow, have the authority to lay the foundation of the church, to explain the gospel authoritatively, thus establishing clearly the door, the gate, the credentials, the confession of the faith that allows us to go in or out. When, then, elders have authority within the church, it is a derivative authority, a declarative authority, only to explain the words of Jesus and the words of the apostles, to declare those words, and to enforce by opening or shutting the doors of the church accordingly those words that have been given to them that are recorded in Scripture. The authority is exercised in preaching. I'm exercising that authority right now. It is exercised in the administration of the sacraments. So we talked about this in the very first of these. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, when I say or Tommy says that this is given to those who are members in good standing of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are, and often we add this, baptized and professing. From others, it is restricted. It is fenced. This is a table for those who are inside the church, not for those who are outside of the church. And finally, this discipline is, this, excuse me, this authority is exercised in church discipline, by which the elders of the church warn, comfort, counsel, exhort, teach, correct, and a number of other verbs, those who are inside the church. These elders, elected then by the congregation, are accountable for those who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ. When I stand before God, He will not ask me about the behavior, the faith of everybody in Conchahokan. What He will ask me about is you, your names. And I will have to, and the elders of the church will have to give account before God for your souls. Why? Because you're members of the church. And that's how I know for whom I'm accountable. And that's how you know who's accountable for you as well. I don't want to be dismissive of those objections that I raised earlier. But we as the people of God and the members of the church, and more so the elders of the church, the deacons of the church, the officers of the church, have promised to, to submit ourselves to the government and discipline of the church. So without being dismissive, the strong objections that are out there, I feel them. I, I'm a person who, like you or, or not like you, I don't know, but I love the idea of my individual freedom. And I love the idea of not being accountable to other people. I would be horrible in the military. And yet, when the Word of God takes the objections and says, yes, all objections notwithstanding, this is the structure that I have created for the care of your soul and for your spiritual flourishing and for my glory, and this is the structure, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, to which I am committed and will not fail throughout all the ages, then 
what do you do? You submit. It doesn't mean the objections aren't real. It doesn't mean the concerns aren't real. But you submit to that which the Lord has established. The biblical witness is stronger than the objections. I know there are arguments out there against church membership. They simply will not hold. They will not hold when tested by Scripture. It's too much to go into all of the responsibilities and privileges of membership. Some of you can hear the old American Express commercials in your mind when we talk about that. But yet, as we close, I think we, we ought at least say what some of those privileges and responsibilities of membership are. And they begin with this. In the first place, membership says you belong. You are part of something. You are on the inside and not on the outside. God has graciously and sovereignly worked through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring you into the family. And this is the family, the body of Christ. For all of its ugliness that it is, this is the family that is being perfected. By faith, by His grace working in your life, you made the good confession, and you make the good confession week after week. At some point, though, most of you stood up here in front of the church and you assented. You gave a vow that are membership vows that is the good confession before the people. And in so doing, you were received by the session into the membership of the church. You are an identifiable member of this body. You belong to Christ and in Christ, you belong to this body and this body belongs to you. Secondly, in belonging to this body, in being a part of this body, you are to participate, to partake of the life of this body. You and I have also promised to aid the church in her work and in her worship. Sometimes those ways of participating are very clear. They are organized. They are things like worship and Sunday school and small group studies. They are work days that are organized by the deacons. They're teaching, they're serving in the nursery, music, choir, various committees providing meals. And other times they're less defined or they're less organized, I should say. They're praying for one another. They're consoling one another. They're checking in on one another to see how we are doing. Thirdly, responsibility and privilege. Membership keeps us on course. Each of us has a drift in our lives, a bent in our lives. Each of us in and of ourselves is hopelessly out of alignment. Do not trust yourself. Do not trust yourself. Now, churches can and will err. Churches, too, can go on a drift. And that is why it is good to be a part of a connected church, not just connected to our church, but connected to a presbytery, connected to a general assembly, and guided by a confession. But church membership protects us from spiritual drift. And finally, membership provides us with resources that are particularly committed to us, particularly committed to you. Recently, someone very close to me came to me with a problem. The problem was a work problem. 
and this person articulated the problem in, uh, in great detail. And I said, you know what I would do if that was me? I said, here's who I would call. I'd be on the phone in two minutes, and I gave the name of two ruling elders and one just lay person within the congregation. And the response is, well, I, I don't want to bother them. I'll talk to you, but I don't want to bother them. And my response is, are you kidding me? I would be calling them this quickly with that need. Why? Because I'm a member of the church. I'm committed, and people are committed to me. And, and, and this is what we're declaring when we become members of the Church of Christ. We're trying to say together that I need help. I need resources, and God has provided that help and a lot of those resources through the various members of the church. Now, that should not be abused in a way that creates dependency or that is inappropriate, but that said, you don't have to self-theologize. You don't have to say, hey, I can't ask anybody about parenting or I might look bad. You've got people around you who are committed to your care, who have said the same thing, that in my turn, I'm going to need your help. And God has networked us together to be able to have that resource together. Those are the benefits of membership. My brothers and sisters, then this. Membership in a local church is a biblical requirement. Can I say it any plainer, any clearer than that? It is a biblical requirement. It is a biblical gift, despite whatever objections we may raise to it intellectually or from our own experience. Rejoice, and I rejoice, in the opportunities that many of you have and take to serve God through good, Christian-based or other organizations in which you do good. Maybe it's Bethany, maybe it's Young Lives or Young Life or a seminary. Maybe it's something else by which you serve God. And that's great and that is wonderful. But biblically speaking, local church first. Local church first. All other things, all other good things in second place. Now, I can't help but recognize that I'm saying that as a pastor. I'm not just trying to say that because I'm a pastor of a local church. If it's not this local church, another local church first. Local church first. That is the scriptural paradigm. It is the parameters that God has set up and established for your spiritual health and well-being. It is that which will not fail the local church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He will preserve it through schisms rent asunder and heresies distress and everything else that you've gone through. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this church and we thank you for showing us the value of the church both experientially and in your word. We've all experienced difficulties in our relationship with others and in our interaction with your church. We recognize it. As leaders, we confess our own failings and the times when we've been blinded by a whole variety of things. And yet you persevere with us. Lord, persevere with your church and preserve us in this world that we might be faithful to you. Where there are those who are here wondering, doubting about membership, help them to examine it, biblically speaking, and to talk to those who are around them about the faith. 
Lord, guide us and help us to love one another in your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.